Welcome to Brand and New, brought to you by the International Trademark Association. INTA is a global association representing more than 30,000 brand owners and professionals dedicated to supporting trademarks and related intellectual property to foster consumer trust, economic growth, and innovation. In this podcast series, every two weeks, host Audrey Dove shares with you a new topic related to innovation and its impact for the legal world, with a special focus on intellectual property. My guest today is Jeremy Kaufman, senior IP attorney at Netflix based in California, certainly one of the most innovative and disruptive companies in the media and entertainment industry. With around 140 million subscribers worldwide, this media services provider produces and distributes shows, movies, and documentaries. Jeremy runs the team that tackles globally all the IP issues, from trademark to copyright, related to this content. Jeremy shares with us the local and global IP challenges he manages, his expectations, and his views about the role of the IP Council today. His insight is unique, completed by his past experiences with other giants of this industry. My first question is about uh, the mutation of the Netflix business over the last decade. They shift from a pure DVD rental company to a streaming distribution platform. And now it's an entertainment content producer. And it seems that it has been embracing innovation and the need to constantly challenge itself and seek new frontiers. Jeremy, could you present us with the company's approach towards innovation and disruption and the risk and opportunities that they trigger? Yeah. So Netflix certainly prides itself on innovation. And as you alluded to, we've had to innovate in order to keep up with technological changes, changes in the entertainment ecosystem. And so innovation makes us adaptable and able to continue to provide a great service to our subscribers. So how we think about innovation is that it has to be coupled with a problem that needs solving hopefully an important problem. Uh, we spend a lot of time thinking about what are the problems that consumers are encountering when they watch TV and movies. Mm -hmm. And each of our shifts in business strategies, you know, going from DVD by mail to streaming to now being a studio and producing our own content, those are all centered around solving big problems. Uh, for example, you mentioned our evolution from, from DVD by mail. Um, well, in order to see how that was an innovation, you have to kind of take a step back and look at the history of film distribution a little bit to get exactly at the problem that DVD by mail was solving. When we did the DVD by mail, we were solving a key consumer problem. And that was that consumers had to go to the DVD store, not once, but twice to complete the transactions. They had to go pick up the movie and then drive back and drop it off. And yes, that could be done at any time. And you had far more variety of titles to choose for. But sheesh, I just remember that trip to drop off the video at the video store was always painful. It was like, all right, I have nothing else to look forward to. And I have to waste <laughs> my time putting in that little drop box, right? But people did it anyhow, because the innovation of home viewing was so great compared to having to go to the theater. So that inefficiency presented the opportunity for us to innovate. 
And it's kind of simple. What we did was we used the existing postal service as the distribution method of, of movies. And so that provided the same amount of content choice, maybe even more, and no restrictions about when you wanted to view. And it solved the big problem of that depressing trip to return the video to the video store. So that's kind of how, how we think about uh, innovation kind of broadly. But I think you also kind of asked the question about how we apply that innovative mindset to, to the legal team. Absolutely. And particularly when it comes to IP. Yeah. Um, and so I think the first thing that we're very purposeful about doing is setting aside time to think about innovation and to try and execute on it. Now, it's naturally easier to focus your attention on the day-to-day -day fires that come across your desk. And you have to put those fires out, certainly. But without lifting your head out of the sand and actually scheduling time to stop and identify those big problems to solve, you're never going to solve those problems. So we purposely schedule times with the entire IP team to get together and say, all right, what are the problems facing us? Lately, most of those problems are centered around scaling because our growth is so explosive. We're producing so much more content this year than we did two years ago. But setting aside that time and making it sacrosanct is super important. And so here on the IP team, we're kind of fortunate to be working in a tech company tech because we can answer that question, is the fix worth the gain sometimes with a lot of data? Um, a good example, prior example of innovation that we've done is our trademark clearance strategy, right? We had not really honed our answer to the question of, where should we be clearing our trademarks, right? And that's that's a challenge that every company that's launching products and services on a global basis has to tackle. Well, we haven't really tackled it. And the answer can't be let's search everywhere because that's insanely expensive, completely unwieldy and ends up with it's not clear somewhere. So when we set about to answer that question, we leverage data. Mm -hmm. And not only because we're a tech company, we have data, but we also have brilliant data scientists uh, strobing the hallways who can help us uh, explore those issues, help us interpret the data, and we think lead to smarter outcomes. So we used a whole bunch of data. I, don't, I can't disclose the secret sauce to come up with a very flexible framework that adjusts our clearance strategy depending on the risk profile of the show or the risk profile of, of a given country. And so that's a really good example that we're particularly proud of. And then I'd add one more piece to that, which is a really, really great part of Netflix's culture and how it thinks about innovation, which is we come to it with humility and without a fear of failing. Innovation is inherently uncertain as to whether it'll work. And if you're only looking for innovations that almost certainly work, then your aperture is far too narrow and you're limiting yourself in your options. And so one of the things that totally blew me away when I arrived at Netflix a couple of years ago was that failed innovation was actually celebrated. Because the next question is, oh, wait, you failed? That's wonderful. What can we learn from that? And that will inform our next attempt at innovation. And I think in other companies, I suspect that taking kind of big risks that don't pan out can put a damper on your career. And it's the opposite here. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. How does it translate for you as an IP lawyer, this culture and uh, this appetite to take risks? So we try to have a reality-based risk tolerance. We're not afraid of claims as long as we have good uh, merits to defend them with. 
we look very much so at the possible outcomes of receiving a claim just as much as as the merits. Now, that's not to say we go off and are reckless and are willful, but when we're giving advice, we're giving advice on, well, what's the likely outcomes here? And the reason why is that's very much how our business is oriented, is don't just tell us no, don't just identify risk. Tell us really what's the downside. And then we always couple any risk assessment with a possible solution. Mm -hmm. And those possible solutions are only as good as the legal department knows its business. Mm -hmm. So we spend a lot of time with our business counterparts. We're on the front lines with them to understand their needs and their businesses so we can reach those better outcomes. Yeah. So you are involved at each and every stage, I guess, of the business process, right? Yeah. Um, and I think... Some IP departments may view themselves a little more as a backroom function, meaning that they're there to clear and secure and protect rights. Uh, we are definitely on the front lines. We're in the room with all the other stakeholders, say for that are working on a movie, because then we get great context that helps us provide better advice. And it also allows us to influence our business in ways that are totally unrelated to IP law. And that's where it gets really fun. And, and we add a lot more value. Do you have an example of that? Without, without getting to any specifics, mm -hmm. when we launch, let's say, a new series, meaning we launch into production, I should say, the actual launch for consumers won't be for maybe two years down the road. We set up regular sync meetings. And in those meetings, we've got our internal creative executives who are there to make sure that our talent has the maximum creative freedom it needs to fulfill its creative vision, because ultimately that's where we're going to be successful. But on top of that, we have the business affairs people who have set up all of the deals, hired all the people, the actors, the editors, the line producers that you need in order to make a show. We have the IP team who is there um, helping to manage risks around title selection or the use of third-party IP within the shows, um, or when we get a claim, how we handle that. There are music attorneys, there's labor attorneys, there are visual effects executives, there are marketing people, so they can get an early read on how they intend to, to market this successfully. Within Netflix, we're super transparent and very, very cross-collaborative. I know probably from an outsider's point of view, we're a bit of a black box, but internally, one of the things that we pride ourselves on is being transparent because that, that transparency creates alignment and alignment allows people to really do the best work of their career because they can do it autonomously and with freedom to take more risk. Mm -hmm. It's very clear. Jeremy, based on your experience at Netflix, but also at Fox and Disney, do you think that being in this industry, the media industry, triggers higher stakes in terms of IP? Yeah, Audrey, that's, that's a good question. And clearly, the IP stakes are very high for any media company because IP is our product. We take pride that in addition to the IP that we're creating, our shows and our movies, uh, we're also wrapping a terrifically innovative service and slick platform around that IP. People who have used our service know that our user interface tries really hard to suggest content that we think that they'll like, is a user-friendly platform, is one that is just appealing to, to be within. But at our heart, 
and soul is our shows and movies. And so IP is our product. But there's a bit more to that story because our IP is not just pure homegrown developed content, right? Mm -hmm. It's not as simple as, oh, we hire Audrey to be our screenwriter and she writes a uh, screenplay and then we make the movie. Instead, our IP creation, our shows and films are often built around IP that we don't own. And that may have been exploited by other competitors. And so navigating what IP rights we can get, like what should those building blocks we can get and how to use them is, is very intricate. And let me give you an example to kind of flesh out these, these concepts a little bit. Let's say hypothetically, and I assure everybody this is hypothetical, that we were going to make a prequel to the Sherlock Holmes books. And that was going to be about the childhood of Dr. Watson. And again, I'm making this up. Well, Sherlock Holmes is, is someone else's IP. We don't own it. The Arthur Conan Doyle uh, estate owns it, right? And it's a book series. And so some of those books have fallen into the public domain, and I believe a few have not. And so one of the early questions that we have to sort out as IP lawyers is whether or not you need any permission from, from the book right owners. But then on top of that, it gets more complicated. The Conan Doyle estate has licensed out rights for decades to producers to make various TV shows and films and God, maybe stage plays. I don't even know. Songs, sculptures, who knows? And those producers may own the rights in their productions. And so if any of those productions and those prior productions dealt with Dr. Watson's childhood, well, that's something that we need to be aware of, too. Mm -hmm. So that kind of scenario of us creating IP, but based on pre-existing IP can turn into a fascinating, but really complicated situation that feels like a law school exam question. <laughs> but digging into those jigsaw puzzles is like truffle hunting. You never know what's going to turn up. It's kind of fun and surprising to see what does. Mm -hmm. I wanted to talk also about uh, the fact that Netflix is a global company such as Disney, uh, as uh, you've worked in the past, as we said earlier. Uh, do you consider that being that global triggers additional challenges in terms of IP management? For, when dealing with content access and distribution, do you favor a macro approach based on geographical areas? or on legal systems? Do you follow individualized approaches for each content based on like contractual arrangements or maybe a mix of both? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's something that we have been grappling with um, over the last six months, I would say. Um, the answer, the, the easy answer to your question is both. Um, we deal with it at a macro level and at a local level. It's no secret that Netflix is pretty well penetrated in the United States. And so where some of our growth opportunity is going to be is catering to international audiences. Well, international audiences have different tastes, right? This is, this is culture and culture varies uh, from place to place, obviously. It's very difficult for a California-based tastemaker to know what is going to be funny to a Japanese or a Chilean audience. Um, so as a result, we are increasing our international operations to create more content that is local. But just because we are creating more content outside of, of the United States, that means that the IP departments had to learn a lot about local laws, about local cultural norms, about local entertainment industry practices and the local media ecosystem. And so to increase our learnings, we, we've kind of done that in two ways. One is that we've begun hiring IP professionals that have local expertise and been deploying them outside of California. 
we're building regional teams that will have expertise for Asia Pacific, LATAM, and EMEA. Mm -hmm. And that's going to just increase our local understanding considerably. I'm a pretty good attorney, but I don't know a lot about Polish copyright law. <laughs> um, and then the other thing to do is obviously we rely on a network of local outside counsel. And one of the things that I've learned along the way is you have to have a pretty healthy dose of humility about how useful your own knowledge is when you're dealing with a local legal issue. In other words, I'd like to think I have a finely honed legal judgment, but that is entirely through my American lens. And so when discussing issues with local counsel that might sound funny to me or incorrect to me, just because it sounds incorrect doesn't mean that that advice is wrong. Just because it doesn't comport with my finely honed American viewpoint doesn't mean it's wrong. I think it's totally fair to test the logical underpinnings of the local advice that we're getting and, and, and work it through. But it can be dangerous to override the advice with our own American judgment. Um, now, sometimes we can provide a lot more context about our risk tolerance, about our business strategies that, that will shape that local advice that we're getting. Mm -hmm. But one has to be really aware of your own biases that can just lead you down the wrong path. Mm -hmm. To what extent you also have a global approach? So some of our content is intended for global audiences. And so with respect to our IP practice, there we just have to accept some risk because we cannot say clear third-party IP to every single country's standards, right? And so you just have to get smarter about, okay, we're making a show that's going to have a global audience. It's being filmed in, let's say, Atlanta, Georgia, in the United States. Yet a big part of it revolves around a German piece of IP, right? Mm -hmm. So there we tend to think about where the, the location of the most likely claimant. And so now Germany gets added into the hopper. And so in that instance, in my hypothetical, there we would also think about not only, you know, we're producing the United States, but maybe we should get German eyes on, on this particular issue. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I wanted also to ask you a question about the Netflix brand. More and more people say they watch Netflix, not even mentioning the actual show. Uh, it, it almost seems like a, a label content publishers or movie stars can add on their track records. What's your perspective yeah. on protecting and managing the Netflix brand? Well, uh, we're hoping that movie stores want to add that label <laughs> to their track record. Um, so I'm excited about your observation. <laughs> But you're right. We are a different entertainment company, mainly because we're a direct-to-consumer proposition. We distribute directly to our customers. And because of that, they know that they are watching Netflix content. And so they may, as you noted, might not be differentiating so much between the producers of our content because they kind of all think it comes from us for the most part. The converse is true for some of our competitors. For example, when consumers go to a movie theater, they probably have no idea and probably don't care, frankly, whether it was produced by Universal or BBC or Canal Plus or any other great producer. And so as a result, our brand has a bigger halo, I think, as a content provider, which is really powerful for us. But it also means something that we have to jealously protect. It means that we have to have a voice mm -hmm. and the voice has to be fairly consistent. 
the look and feel doesn't necessarily need to be consistent, but it has to be authentic is really the word. Mm -hmm. But having to speak in an authentic voice also extends to everyone in the company. It extends to hopefully this conversation when even our lawyers are interacting with potential infringers or others. We want to be speaking in that authentic voice because our brand is so directly in, is, is so much more consumer facing than our competitors. Mm -hmm. I have a, a last question for you, uh, Jeremy. Could you share with us your secret? Uh, how do you keep mm. up with tech innovation? And if you were to give our listeners one advice, uh, a small step that they could include in their daily professional routine, particularly related to new technologies, what would it be? I'm going to give one completely amorphous tip and one concrete and probably fairly obvious tip. <laughs> so the, the amorphous one is be curious. Be curious about the industry in which you are working. Be curious in the concerns of your business counterparts. Be curious about things at work that are outside your lane because the more you know, the better you'll be able to advise and operate. And so that includes being curious about your competition, about legal trends, about um, opportunities to leverage new technology, to drive efficiency. We do a lot of that here. So having a curious mindset will set the table for keeping up, but also just better outcomes. And then the small tactical thing is it, goes back to what we discussed about innovation is just making time for it, which is sounds easy, but it's really hard. I have time on my calendar every Friday to read all those legal updates that come to me by email. So I'm, I'm up to date on that. And then um, I also have time on my calendar to just read the industry journals, usually the entertainment industry journals, just so I know what's going on in the ecosystem. And sometimes sometimes that's where I'm learning stuff about Netflix uh, for the first time. So again, just be real purposeful with your time. It's your most valuable asset. Use it to keep up. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Thank you. My guest today was Jeremy Kaufman, senior IP attorney at Netflix, a company that operates streaming services and produces content in around 190 countries. Thank you for listening. Be sure to tune in every two weeks on Tuesday for future episodes of Brand and New, a podcast from the International Trademark Association. If you liked this episode and think someone else would too, please share it. And to learn more about INTA, please visit INTA.org.